welcome to Got the Runs, the comics podcast with all the sexual chemistry of me and my dead ex wife. Mm. <laughs> <Right>. Cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> Just the idea of like there being a cliffhanger that I know I will never in my life resolve. Uh, It is funny that that's his last issue. I mean, we'll talk about that more when we get there. I'm a 100% that he did not write a single word of that script. Like 100% certain. There is like a noticeable change in the writing style when it like around the time when it's like Matt Fraction's on. Yeah, I yeah, I'm basically 100% sure that Matt Fraction wrote those issues. And the only na- reason that Ed Brubaker's name is on them is because he helped plot them because he was he was originally supposed to like have a bit more of a handoff where there were some issues that like there were there were like six issues that they co-plotted together and then Matt Fraction was supposed to write his and Brew Baker was supposed to write his and then after that it was going to go to like 100% Fraction um but those issues are the ones that aka 10 over 10 <laughs> sure um those issues 100% are the ones fraction. that when like when they thought that was going to be the plan Fraction's like solo issues basically were supposed to be 501, 502, 503. Right. And then Brubaker was supposed to write 504 to 506, which he then just like didn't do. <laughs> right. And it's like instantly like, I mean, the first pages of 501 are like, oh, why are there suddenly like omniscient narration boxes? Yeah, at like smarmy uh, like <laughs> yeah. title cards for every character. Yeah. There's a huge tonal shift. There's a huge stylistic shift. Um and I'm, yeah, I'm absolutely positive that his name is only on those because he, like, technically co-plotted them. <laughs> sure. Of course, today <laughs> we are discussing uh, Uncanny X-Men, continuing from last week, discussing Uncanny X-Men number 487 to 503. Some would say this was a bad idea. (laughs) Our first one in a while where I read the comics and I was like, we shouldn't have done this. (laughs) I will say, so I haven't read Brubaker's uh, X-Men before, as I think I said. I was under the impression that he wrote all of Messiah Complex. So I kind of thought that we were coming into this and that there was going to be like another kind of cohesive epic to sort of close things out um right but obviously that was not the case (laughs) i texted you and asked did you read the rest of messiah complex that is also did you read um oh what's it called like the messiah complex one shot thing no it's this thing oh oh, the like backup story thing (laughs) yeah no (laughs) (laughs) the 17 part eight page backup yeah which like if you do the math endangered species (laughs) collects perfectly into a trade which i was like this is kind of a funny and interesting idea for like serialization of something that like maybe got pitched as like an original graphic novel because they were like well we're not going to do its own series but then they were like hey here's an idea We'll do like backups or something. I sort of thought that that was going to be the case. And then I saw as we made our way through the uncanny issues that they weren't all even like written by the same person. <laughs> so then I was like, oh, so this was just like a very 
like weirdly ambitious idea for a backup that never works right well i guess there are yeah i guess there are like those like thousand people or whatever who buy like four issues a month for five months or whatever you'd like you're talking about to like boost the sales of other titles because there's a backup crossover happening i think crossovers in general i'm probably wrong like they wouldn't keep doing them if they weren't successful but just like it just annoys me so much as someone who like if i'm reading the book then i want to read that book i don't want to read like i don't want to come into this book and be like okay i'm gonna read parts four seven and (laughs) ten yeah i think that this is maybe kind of changing the problem is like the discourse around all this stuff that happens like on Twitter or like on Reddit or message boards or whatever is not like the same population of the fandom that supports like financially supports these kinds of crossovers. Um, Because like my sense of it is that people are like pretty much out on these who are like under age 40. Um, And if there is like a big crossover where it's like, oh, the title that I'm following month to month is going to have like you said, like chapters four, seven, and 12, they're just like, well, I guess I'm not buying this title for three months because like, I don't care. But also like, it's maybe even worse when the way that they do it is like, there is a mainline series and this one's just like, here's how this character reacted to this epic crossover. It's like, I don't care. That is a a major issue that I have had recently with Marvel's omnibus lines, because um, as we've talked about previously, I'm very into omnibuses. Generally, I think they are, I think they began as a really good idea and a really good way to um, commemorate like signature runs and also to make sort of like the history of the Marvel universe more accessible by having stuff like, like really classic runs like the original Spider-Man and Fantastic Four and that stuff like bulk available in these big collections. Like, I think that's a really cool idea. At some point, the discourse around them became basically like the bigger, the better. I want like a 1400 page book for every single omnibus. It's not worth the money if I'm not getting like 45 plus issues. And Marvel's response to that rather than to collect more like kind of big, long, iconic runs is to do more crossovers and to get like every single issue where a character even like mentions that the crossover is happening like period so like for example i had the infinity gauntlet omnibus at one point which is like great classic event signature storyline you know formed the basis of the whole like climax of the original sort of vision of the mcu and it collected a lot. It, I, I collected an omnibus's worth of relevant stuff, which is like there's like Thanos quest where he like searches for the Infinity Stones. There's like maybe 10 issues of Silver Surfer that are like quite relevant. Um, there's some like Adam Warlock issues that are relevant. And then there's like the Infinity Gauntlet event itself, which is I think eight issues or six issues. So there's like 20 issues, 22 ish issues of relevant material, which I'm like, that's a perfectly reasonable size for an omnibus. They made a devil dinosaur omnibus that has like seven issues. <laughs> so 22 is like good in my book. But then there's like another 14 where it's like daredevil. Here's what daredevil was doing during infinity gauntlet. And it's like two <laughs> issues of daredevil. And it's like, he doesn't, he's not there to fight Thanos. He doesn't like interact with silver surfer. He doesn't see like Adam Warlock or anything. It's just like, oh, this thing like happened in Infinity Gauntlet and Daredevil like gets a phone call from 
gets or like it's like Matt Murdock gets a phone call where someone's like, my wife is missing. I can't remember what the details of it are, but it's like it literally has nothing to do with the event. It ends in the middle of a story because the, it stops having it like literally anything to do with Infinity Gauntlet after two issues. So you don't even get the resolution of it. You just are like dropped into the middle of Daredevil for two completely random issues where you have no context for anything that's happening. The event you just read is like not really associated with it. And then you don't even like see the resolution of that story because they don't collect the whole thing. It serves no one, I feel like. It's like the people who read that comic don't want it, and the people who are interested in the event don't want, like, just, like, a, sh- a one-off mention mm-hmm. or, like, another tie-in I have to buy. Yeah. I think, like, X-Men is also in a funny spot for this because they kind of, like, well, pioneered the line-wide event to a certain extent. Yeah. Where, I like, mean, it's their fault for having, like, six comics. Yeah, but, but the way that they would do it more so kind of like back in the day was not in this style where it's like each book is going to be chapters like this, this, this. It was more so in the kind of like, I I guess what you're saying you don't like and what I usually don't like as well. But they would do like, okay, this one is a like New Mutants event and sort of like the main event is going to happen in New Mutants, but the events of it are going to impact what happens in the other books. So like Uncanny X-Men is going to have a thing about it and X-Factor is going to have a thing about it and Excalibur is going to have a thing about it, but they're not ever going to like, there's never going to be an issue that ends with them being like, let's go to New York so that we can participate in this thing. And then the next issue starting with like, previously they went to the battle and participated. And now like, you know, the start of the next issue is like, that was a crazy battle. (laughs) Like that never happened. They had like a full complete story, which was like, connected to the events of like the main event and like built on those things and the implications for those characters. But it was never like you have to read one of the other titles to get like the full story, so to speak. And that's what I thought this was going to be because it was like, you know, you're focusing on like this sort of core group of like Cyclops storms, there, Wolverines, there, Nightcrawler, Colossus, like a pretty core group of characters. And so I thought I did think it was like, Oh, like, it's going to tell the story of these characters as it relates to this event, but it that's not really what it is. No. It's like it because like I thought that it, I think it's like four ninety two and four ninety three. Mm-hmm. I thought they were like sort of like directly going off of each other, but then when you actually read the book, it's like oh something just happened that mm-hmm. I didn't see. Yeah, even like coming in out of. Um the like the one shot that is supposed to have happened where like I like opened the next issue of uh of uncanny uh which was what I guess it's 492 is the first one that ties into messiah complex and I started reading and I was like oh I skipped one (laughs) (laughs) and then I went back and I was like Oh no, I didn't skip one. And then I like found the reading order where it's like chapter one, its own like one shot thing. And then I was like, oh, it's one of these. I didn't realize that it was one of these. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's also like, I mean, I guess I do know because it kind of talks about it, but it's like, what happened in the one shot? Because I feel like basically like nothing. I guess it is there has been, you know, this big attack. Yeah, I think most of the like most of the one shot is just like this big fight. Right. So I've re- I did 
I don't usually make a lot of notes these days for these episodes, but <laughs> one thing I did do this week was I wrote down all of the groups that are like <laughs> that like have a stake in this. Okay. So like so in this event particularly, I think it just in like the 10 issues or so that like basically like going up to like issue 500 it feels like there is a bit of like a soft reset yeah this is this is good because i was thinking about this like one of the biggest like maybe not one of the biggest but i do think it's a major weakness of this book that after um rise and fall of the shiar empire was focused on like it was a big group and it was a weird group but it was like the same characters are in pretty much yeah. every issue then coming out of it, it was like almost every issue. It was like, here's another completely random assortment of X-Men who are like going to be in this one. Yeah, I didn't write down all the character names. I should have done that because like the main characters of this run are like Cyclops and Emma Frost, mm -hmm. which is like, sure. Um, there's a lot of Nightcrawler. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, it's a pretty there's there's some classic people here like Nightcrawler and Wolverine are in it a lot. Yeah, it's just it's weird with like some of the dangling threads coming out of Rise and Fall that like Professor X just kind of like stops being in it for the most part. And especially after like once once he hits uh, Messiah Complex, it's like any like through lines from before that. He's just kind of like, OK, whatever, <laughs> like I my give up, basically. <laughs> they they like kick i truly like can't remember the things i read in these comics like immediately <laughs> after i read them because like truly i will have like 15 tabs open because every page is like remember when this happened mm -hmm. well now this is that <laughs> it's just like why like cassandra nova gets invoked in one panel and i was like okay i guess i have to find out who cassandra nova is and then I <laughs> you don't remember cassandra nova from the her her also one panel mention in uh, rise and fall of the shiar empire and i find out that she is like the dark mirror of professor x who is like a parasite from another dimension yeah she's good um she seems cool. Go just, just start listing because there's a panel I want you to see very badly. <laughs> okay, I've got the X Men. I've got X Force who are formed in this set of issues. Yes, and, and whose roster like the this is the the launch of like the Craig Kyle Chris Yost run, which like the from what I saw of their like three page snippets where they appeared, it's like by the time they get to like issue three, like half of those characters are cut. <laughs> Because it is kind of like trying to pick up the threads from mm -hmm. some of the stuff from like Rise and Fall. Because it's like Warpath and Hepzibah, yeah. Wolverine, X-23, Wolfsbane for some reason. Like it's mostly people we've seen before. Mm -hmm. But then, uh, I mean, Uncanny X-Force we stand, And so I can't really get behind this team in any real way. <laughs> because I'm just like, I wish it was Uncanny X-Force. Those guys are so cool. The Chris they wear Kyle the white uniforms. Or the Craig Kyle Chris Yost run <laughs> is like, okay. The Chris Kyle. <laughs> um, it's, it's not bad. It was, especially at the time, I think. I'm sure it's fine. In the sort of like post-Whedon era of X-Men, I think people would point to that as kind of a highlight. Sure. Um. You've got X-Men, you've got X-Force, you've got the Morlocks, who uh, have a lot of people who, I was talking about this last week, mm -hmm. the, like the people who have like the power where it's like, this isn't actually useful, but then like 
you kind of just like make find ways to make it interesting. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of those people. Sure do. Um, you have an O N E, the like Sentinel Corps. Yes, it stands for something. Of course it does. The Office of National something emergencies. Sure, sure. Uh, you've got Shield. You've got the Fantastic Four because of course <laughs> at this point Storm <laughs> is an X Man. She is a member. She is like the queen of Wakanda. Yes, of course. We stand. And she is a member of the Fantastic Four. Yes. <laughs> this is all correct. It's insane. Uh, you've got like Magneto. I just, I literally just have Magneto because he doesn't really have like a team, mm-hmm. but like he is around. Yeah, certainly. You've got Tepsiba, who was with the Starjammer. Uh-huh. So that's like a, li- a connection there. You've got the Avengers, who are also, like, alluded to a couple of times. Mm-hmm. So it's like, they saw Magneto <laughs> or something. Yep. You've got the Purifiers. No clue. <laughs> they're, like, they're anti I get them mixed up a lot. I was actually, I didn't even really notice that they were involved until a bit further in. Because first, they referenced the Marauders. And there are That's... X-Men <laughs> villains who are called the Marauders, the Reavers, and the Purifiers. And I know who all three of those groups are. Like, I could tell you what all three of those groups are, like, about, but I couldn't tell you which one is associated with, like, which thing. Because <laughs> it's like Kitty Pride is the Marauders now, right? Like, yes. they sort of rebooted that the name. Mara- so I think my memory is that the Marauders are a, like... They're introduced as a, a Thunderbolts sort of style, um, like right. superhero team. But actually, it's all like bad guys who are on it. And they're like basically put together to like be a mutant, like false flag thing later. Sure. Great. Um, yeah. The reason that I originally started writing this down is because I was looking at the Messiah Complex Wikipedia page trying to like <laughs> figure out what was going on. And then the overview, it's it's like... The, the birth of the first child with the X-Gene, got it, sparking a race between the X-Men, the Marauders, the Acolytes, the Reavers, the Purifiers, and Predator X. And I was like, <laughs> go away. <laughs> like, what a list of like words that are inherently meaningless. Yeah, I forgot that Predator X uh, was in there. Yeah, and only appears very briefly in... Uh, the issues that we have read right um yeah and then also later we have the hellfire cult right which is like a riff. its own thing yeah a riff uh, so yeah so i have just sent you <laughs> pages that are from new x-men that explain uh oh, no cassandra nova's origin this is from of course the nuff said initiative where they did a month of silent issues which good bit but <laughs> basically professor x is great. <laughs> she's like um so it shows gene gray like going into professor x's memories to learn the origin of cassandra nova and then she is like swimming with his father's sperm into the fertilized egg watches it split into two twins watches the cassandra nova twin gain consciousness and attempt to strangle (laughs) professor x who then like mind deletes her with his like latent psychic powers (laughs) and that was like her origin story for a long time 
and you get this image of Professor X with a huge head. Yes, and you get uh, a very good image of Professor X with a huge head, and he's crying. I mean, we love a huge head. We love a huge head. Um, we love freaking uh, the Green Lantern villain with the huge head. We love him. <laughs> Sinestro? No, uh, he's got he like a double a H name. Well. Hector. Oh, I know who you're talking about. Hector Hammond. He's like a mad scientist. I want to say. The leader? Sure. Question mark? Sure. The leader also has a big head, but that's a... Oh, but he's a different Hulk thing. villain. That's you know. right. That's right. That's right. Hector Hammond has a big head. The leader also has a big head. Um, Modoc, famously big head. The leader kind of looks like Sinestro. They all kind of look like Sinestro. <laughs> the thing. Sinestro is a villain who seems like he should have a big head, but doesn't. Sure. You know who also looks like Sinestro? Uh, Nightcrawler with his oh, disguise. Yeah. On. Okay. <laughs> what a crazy disguise! First of all, and also like, is it? Do you think it was deliberate that it was like we're gonna make Nightcrawler in disguise look like he's like fifty-seven? I think the well, I think the idea is like he looks like Errol Flynn, right? I, yes, I think that probably is the idea, but like or like some other kind of, but like why adventure. Errol Flynn? He doesn't really look like Errol Flynn, I will say. Yeah, I, he's he like he's like inspired by Errol Flynn for sure, and like sort of swashbuckly. But I'm like, why would you make him look like old Errol Flynn and not right. Errol Flynn, who's like the same age as Nightcrawler is supposed to be, which is thirty twenty. <laughs> X Men ages are so messed up because some of them are supposed to have been there since. They were like teenagers and some of them aren't. So they have to be like old enough to be teachers, but they can't be so old that it's like, why are, why do you still do missions? But then right. like also everyone who has come in after them is like, they can only be so much younger. <laughs> right. And it's like, why is your memory of childhood always like in the 60s? Yeah. Well, and and more so just like, how has Kitty Pride gone from being like 12 to 28 in the same amount of time that Cyclops has gone from being like 28 to like 33? Yeah. I mean, there's, the, I think... You know, what we're sort of <laughs> alluding to, not too directly, <laughs> is just that, like, there's nothing to talk about here except, like, how incredibly crushing the weight of X-Men canon is yeah. on every every book that, like, tries to exist in its universe. Well, okay, like, I, I will be fair. I thought the extremist story, which is, like, the very first one um, of the thing, is pretty interesting relatively speaking yeah. i think like i think it has some interesting ideas um i think that i i made an offhand remark in the last episode that it was a book without themes <laughs> i think that it starts to kind of establish a thematic through line from shiar empire that like points quite promisingly towards messiah complex in terms of like faith and where you place faith and like the power of people who are like true believers basically and the danger of people who are true believers. And I think like the story in and of itself is like fine. I think the problem with this chunk of issues is that, like I said, once it hits Messiah Complex, he completely loses the reins and is telling three parts of it's a like 12 unreadable. part story. <laughs> yeah, it's it is basically unreadable in isolation. And then he basically like whatever momentum he had or whatever excitement he had about this book is just like palpably gone the the 
follow-up to Messiah Complex is like the most nothing story <laughs> that I have like maybe ever read. Which is that like right. San Francisco is back in the summer of love. I I like this. You like that one? <laughs> I was just like I was just like he is doing something that is not like because like I think that what I was sort of trying to get to is just that like you can't tell an X-Men story <laughs> without it inevitably becoming about like the canon of X-Men. Like it just inevitably becomes like about X-Men lore. Yeah. Because it's either like we're just recovering from this big thing that happened or a big thing is happening, which is a result of a thing that happened like <laughs> 10 plus years ago. I mean, that is really like the Claremont model. And I will say even like, I think my favorite issue out of this chunk is the like immediately post Messiah complex one where they are like on, on vacation. vacation in the savage land. Yeah. Which is like pretty much a classic, like, uh, a playing baseball issue i.e like the you know the grand claremont tradition of like we're gonna now have an issue where they do literally nothing <laughs> like they just hang out right. and have a good time um which is like great good yeah that, but that is like kind of like the established claremont rhythm of like story story big story recovery story story based on something that happened 10 years ago that seeds a future another future story you know like light two-part story big story <laughs> like it, yeah. it just kind of does <sighs> yeah x-men probably more than like any other superhero comic and because of sort of the influence of chris claremont on the genre and like the medium as a whole is just like uh, yeah it it really does just have a rhythm that is quite relentless and a continuity that is so impenetrable even by the standards of like superhero comics generally yeah it's just it's very and that like i think that is why like even though i agree with you like it's not really anything like this story like this character doesn't really matter that much even though like i guess there's it, it also seeds something at the end mm -hmm. but like i was just relieved to have it be like this isn't like tying into anything this isn't like based i guess it does become based on like someone from 20 years ago or whatever <laughs> mm -hmm. but in in the moment it's just like this is a thing that's happening <laughs> and well yeah yeah but like you, the conclusion there even where it's like it spends like basically the two or however many issues kind of teasing like who is it who's the goddess who's it gonna be it's like oh it's of course martinique wingard lady mastermind <laughs> daughter like, of the master one of yes. like the more obscure characters in x-men and yet we're supposed to be like oh, it's martinique <laughs> yeah <laughs> just just like no i can't i can't manage any ounce of surprise yeah i mean that's another classic google the reveal type beat mm -hmm. <laughs> um and Again, that also like is seeding something else. I mean, we assume because we never. <laughs> no, it is. Well, I mean, like the Sisterhood of Mutants is a matter oh, of prior. Oh, oh thing, right, right, right. Like the the Sisterhood of Evil Mutants. Right, I forgot about that. Uh, or probably yeah, just what... the Sisterhood, because <laughs> they they dropped yeah. the whole Evil Mutants thing. It is listed on the Marvel uh, wiki as the Sisterhood of Mutants. Uh huh. Um... Anywho, 
I I mean there is no anywho because this is what the comic (laughs) (laughs) I saw this arc compared to WandaVision and I was like (laughs) (laughs) I guess if you say so yeah because it's like you know you're mind controlling the whole town Uh uh-huh I, I want to talk about the artists and the art itself at some point because we didn't really get a chance to talk about it last time. And there's a pretty oh. big new kind of crop of uh, of collaborators here. But first, I want to talk about a few nuggets buried in the art. Number one, it's just like hilariously dating the technology in this where someone like watches a news broadcast on an iPod at one point. That was crazy. <laughs> That's not like that would never be a thing. So no, they, you would have to they, have downloaded. <laughs> <laughs> Makes no sense. I lost my mind when I saw that. And then also like there's like the scene where um, a bunch of like the original New Mutants, it's like Cannonball and Karma and Danny Moonstar are like out to dinner and then all their phones go off at the same time. But it's like all Motorola razors <laughs> that yeah. made me laugh really hard. Not even. Um, did you notice that the video game that Caliban was playing was just straight up Gears of War? I thought it was like, I did see something about that. I forget what issue that is. I thought it was like, oh, I forget. I did like see what it was and was like, what is that? Because that is something we love to do. But mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm I'm going to try and find that again because I do remember thinking like, is that something? It's it's in one of the earlier issues of... yeah the extremists i want to say it's, it's probably in like, like rescued yeah i want to say it's in like 487 or 480 or no 488 or 489 i mean it's very different from what we were just seeing because i think we we did talk about the art some last episode we sort of talked about like how like surprisingly 90s it is yeah the and the sort of like um bad girl kind of like pinup nature of it all sorry 489 is the one where uh <laughs> Okay. Where you see it. I think I, I also got thrown off on it because he makes an explicit reference to fighting Nazis. Right. So what I was trying to figure out oh, was... I think... I remember. I think that... I thought that was Garrus from Mass Effect on the screen. But you might... Oh, it is Gears of War. Well, now that I'm looking yeah, at it again. The only reason I say see Gears is because of, yeah, the very, like... like It's like a pretty signature look as to the sort of, like... The, the use of cover and the perspective and all that stuff. Yeah. The way that they kind of like go, chunk, 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 chunk. <laughs> Those yeah, seem fun. Have you ever played Gears of War? I have played briefly some parts of the first Gears of War. I've never played anything kind of like subsequent. Those seem fun. But I was trying to figure out when the first like modern warfare Nazi zombie mode was. Oh, well, that's in World at War, which I believe is 2009. Or maybe a little earlier. Let's see here. 2008. I was pretty close. But yeah, that's the first one with Nazi zombies. Okay, so so that can't uh, can't have been a deliberate reference so much as just like, oh, it's like a Medal of Honor or like Call of Duty style game where it's just like a World War II game. It's a shooting. Yeah, I feel like it's kind of weird now to be like, back at that time mm-hmm. it probably was like synonymous that it's like if you're playing a first person shooter you're killing nazis mm-hmm. the next video in the queue when they watch the message from mask on WeTube <laughs> is a spider-man 3 teaser <laughs> great 
which we like. And then I guess the other one was just like, I think it's in that same issue, actually. But when there, there's like a news broadcast that comes on and there's just like literally like a screen grab of two people sitting at a news desk like put on top of the TV, which looks completely insane. Oh, yeah, here it is. Yeah, I mean, I think the art style almost made me think of like, I know it's not this at all. Oh, that is funny. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? <laughs> it, I was like, it's such a stark departure from what it was before yeah. that it was like very jarring. And like, it almost feels like it's like Alex Ross in the way that it's like, it is trying to be like, not photorealistic exactly, but like it is trying to like draw faces realistically mm-hmm. and like shade them. I, I would say that it is trying to be photorealistic because two of the artists who uh, uh, crop up over the course of this run, one of whom is on this um, extremist arc is Salvador La Roca, and the other is Greg Land, who does some of the issues once Matt Fraction comes on. And they are both guys who have gotten a lot of flack um, for like a lot of use of uh, like just tracing or like reuse of panels or like the big the big like scandalous thing for Greg Land is that like um, like tracing porn. There was someone found like the image that he traced and it was just like straight up porn to which I say, like, especially in this era it just like doesn't really bother me because it doesn't look that bad most of the time. I feel like the people who get really like not not to say like, oh, trace everything all the time. Like they de- like land especially has some like pretty bad examples that you can find of of like really clear tracing. But I think that people who get really worked up about it maybe underestimate the amount of tracing that is just like part of the production of corporate art generally. And like we talked already about that, um, that like Wally Wood thing that he had uh, allegedly pinned up above his desk, which is like never, never draw what you can uh, trace, never trace. What is it? Never, never draw what you can reuse never reuse what you can trace never trace what you can cut out and paste down (laughs) something like that which is basically like like reminder to himself to like steal his own art at every possibility for the sake of like saving time and maximizing his output (laughs) right and and it's just a thing where it's like i don't know people like will get mad because they can recognize a lot of times what has been used with these two guys particularly like i think um LaRocca has a really funny one where Iron Man, like wearing the Iron Man helmet, is doing that like pained, like old man having a heart attack face. (laughs) And like the helmet is making the face, (laughs) which is like, (laughs) obviously that's like bad and that's a funny example. And it's like, oh, but people, people don't like get on it because it's like, why would you choose that as the image to trace? They just kind of get on it as a like, he traces. And it's like, yeah. Most of the artists that you're reading, like, use a, like, 3D rendering software to, like, pose bodies and then trace that. <laughs> like, that happens right. all the time. Um, that, that I don't know. People just, I think, sometimes have this assumption that everything is somehow, like, drawn freehand. And if it's not, then it's, like, plagiarism or hacky or something. And, I, like, 
yeah, I don't know. Maybe these guys could make better decisions with it. Maybe they could be a little bit more subtle about it at times. But at the end of the day, I'm just sort of like, it's not that far beyond what like every professional artist, I think, pretty much does. Sure. I mean, I don't really have strong opinions about it, I don't think. Um, I would certainly rather something look good than bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, it just like it gets a lot of discourse because the fans get so worked up. But I just think that it's very telling that like no collaborators, very few other artists, like other other professional creatives have never said a word about it. And they keep getting work all the time. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, because at the end of the day, like they don't make a fuss. They turn in readable work and they do it like fast and on time. Like these are also guys who like never miss deadlines. And so it's just like at the end of the day, like they have a, an element of professionalism where it's like even if the work itself you find hacky, it's like, listen, there's deadlines <laughs> and these sure. guys, these guys meet deadlines. Although I think sure. Greg Land did one of them recently got in trouble for just like straight up stealing somebody else's cover for like an aliens book, which like that's no good, certainly. Yeah, I did see something about that. Um, I think that was Greg Land. Um, yeah, I mean, and they're like, it does feel this art feels more like 2000, what I would think of as like 2000s artwork. Mm -hmm. Now that we're in like 2008, <laughs> um, it did surprise me. Like, the jump feels quite like stark mm -hmm. compared to what we were reading previously. And I mean, in terms of the pinup shots, I don't think we're free of those. No. There is like one particularly egregious example where it's like storm and it's like from behind and her <laughs> cape is like blowing up in the wind and you can see her from behind. And that like pained me. And then like there's Emma Frost, but that Emma Frost is like, that's supposed to be a sexual character. Uh -huh. So... It's I'm not thing. going to like, yeah, it's like they put Emma, Emma Frost in reviewing clothing. Like, sure. Yeah. But yeah, it, it is. It's better. Yeah. It, um, it's funny because like another couple of guys who I would put in this sort of similar stylistic camp would be like Mike Deodato Jr. Um, uh, Butch Guise or Geis. I can't remember how to pronounce his name. And those are both guys who worked with Brubaker a ton on Captain America. Like they they have tons of Captain America issues that they did with him. So I wouldn't be surprised as well if he prefers this more kind of like realist, if not photorealistic style, um, especially for a story that is like a bit more. It's weird to call this grounded because it's about like <laughs> a like deranged prophecy that everyone is trying to make come true in the way that like they interpret it but it is also weirdly like an espionage story where one of the characters at one point is just like i'm a shield agent <laughs> right i mean it's certainly more grounded than the shiar empire yeah that's for sure um yeah and i mean like it makes sense that on captain america or daredevil which are more grounded books that that would be his preference mm -hmm. and i think like this stuff like looks good by and large yeah I, I think like a lot of the feel of it is also like the really glossy, like mid 2000s color where there's like yeah. so much digital covering or coloring rather. Um, so there's like, you know, there's that gradient and that shine on everything. 
like civil war it really looks like civil war i feel like i'm looking at like the first pages of the extremists where it's or of um messiah complex where it's like the aftermath of the battle in cooperstown alaska and i'm like this looks exactly like the art of uh like right after like the stanford explosion in civil war which is steve epting another uh collaborator with brew baker on daredevil or on uh, on captain america sure if you say so i do um i just i have a very like (laughs) i have a very specific memory or like i can very clearly picture in my head what the picture what spider-man looks like when he unmasks like in oh yeah yeah, obviously like has become a very famous panel Mm -hmm. and like i do just like that is like what i associate this style of art with is like that panel and it's like his it's like a realistic looking face but also just like looks kind of weird and is colored kind of weird yeah but also like like, there is like my name is peter parker and i've been spider-man since i was 15 years old yeah just like every panel of this although (laughs) speaking of which did you notice that there's like a really weird instance of like repeated dialogue in that like savage land issue where iron man says like the exact same thing in like two consecutive panels (laughs) or maybe it's two consecutive pages let me find it it is it's when he has like that that confrontation with uh what's his face cyclops yeah a post messiah complex that's what it is what am yeah. i what am i looking for here i guess we're looking at like 494 i want to say that one is 495, 495. i believe is divided we stand starts right yeah okay so iron man shows up and says to scott they're pushing me to officially register all of you dot 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 to get right. the x-men into the system <laughs> yeah. and scott replies and they have like a back and forth and then his first dialogue balloon <laughs> on the next page is scott that's not fair they're pushing me to officially <laughs> register all of you dot 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 to get the x-men into the system <laughs> i did like, notice that and i was like why did you say that to like <laughs> like so a similar specifically. way <laughs> the dot 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 is funny uh so that was weird also <laughs> and just like as symptomatic i feel like of sure i mean it is a classic thing where it's like if it's something where it's like you should have caught that i feel like that is maybe like not not necessarily but probably symptomatic of <laughs> like he just some kind feels of underlying pretty, issue pretty checked out yeah, um, like no one even like read this <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I always think of the letters when I'm doing this because I'm like, (laughs) I know it's not your job. Like, it's literally not your job to go back to people and be like, hey, just double checking. Is this what it's supposed to say? (laughs) But like, I always think of the letters who have to like recreate whatever it says in the script (laughs) to like put into the word balloon and probably look at it like more times than anybody else except for maybe the writer and in some cases probably even the writer that like i don't know there's probably like an industry standard where it's just like if you're a letterer just like myob it's not worth it to like try and insert yourself and like step on the editor's toes and the writer's toes or whatever blah 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 but I'm just like, if I was a letterer, I would not be able to resist <laughs> just like sending a single email to be like, hey, <laughs> I just mark. noticed these two lines are really similar and wanted to make sure that like this is what we just like what we're going with before I like 
put it down in in ink you know yeah and i mean like it does have like like one of them has like bolding and the other one doesn't so it's like it's not like you just copy and paste it you did you did have to write it twice mm-hmm. um another uh thing that is like a recurring thing in the art a lot which most of the time i like but which is also sort of like a symptom of how shiny everything is is like reflections in things <laughs> So, like, there's a lot of, like, throughout the issues and between different artists, like, things being reflected in Cyclops' glasses or in his visor. Um, A lot of things getting reflected in Wolverine's claws. A lot of things getting reflected in, like, uh, Colossus's knuckles. There's one, that's probably my favorite use of it. There's one where he's, like, about to punch someone in the face, and then in, like, each of his four discreet knuckles, you see their, like, cringing face (laughs) preparing to be hit. (laughs) By and large, I would say that pretty much all of the artists who work on this chunk of issues are like pretty well known and established as you kind of have to be to uh, work on X-Men at any given point. But um, I would characterize them mostly as sort of like workmanlike, as I said, Mm -hmm. like I there's not a lot in here that's really visually interesting to me or that I ever felt like it like really pulled me into the art. Um, and the coloring, like, like Ryan Choi, who does the uh, Divided We Stand stuff, is an artist who I usually like a fair bit, but he just feels like lost under the colors in these particular issues, which is also funny because I feel like there's some of the like better colors in the San Francisco the 60s, section. Yeah. yeah. Where it's like, Oh, there's like a weird atmosphere because they're like, you know, in a different time basically. And yet like, I don't it, His, his art is just like deleted almost by the colors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's some fun stuff. Like I, I, I think in general, like getting to the San Francisco setting also really feels like a breath of fresh air. Because, like, we've been under, like, a lot of darkness and mm-hmm. a lot of, like, in space or inside, like, the basement of a building or whatever. And so just to be, like, outside where, like, there is, like, some sense of setting and, like, some sense of, like, natural around you does make a big difference. Um, so, yeah, maybe that is also part of what makes it feel like a bit of, like, a breath of fresh air. But... Yeah, and uh, yeah, just like tonally, like I said, with it being pretty clear to me that Fraction scripted most, if not all, of those three issues once they sort of like make the official move to San Francisco, um, there is just sort of like a mood shift that I also found to be like a bit of a breath of fresh air, even though overall, like, I wouldn't say that I liked those any better and in fact i found a lot of elements of them quite grating like those really like sort of uh, like smarmy ish uh like name cards that everyone had that got like yeah kind of grating pretty quickly um yeah. i mean like that's just such a comics thing yeah it's like i'm actually pretty funny <laughs> yeah it, you know what it really smacks of to me and this is sort of like the perfect moment for it too is like yo I just read this indie book, Scott Pilgrim, and it was freaking hilarious. I've got some crazy ideas for like 
what to do, <laughs> then it's like yeah. open. All right. Uh, narration box, colon, Logan dash Wolverine. His Maserati does 185 control S. <laughs> the one the one instance of it where I liked the usage is at the end with uh, Pixie when it when it's like Pixie X-Men. Yeah, I, I mean, that was like a fun. That's a good like tag on what they have been doing the whole time. But like, is it worth? Yeah, exactly. Everything that they had to do to get there. Uh, who can say yeah and i just i like i think i like that arc also like i think that that's probably one of my more favorite parts of what we've read of this is just like giving a character who you probably don't know and also like again it's like this character doesn't have existing baggage like you can just tell a story Mm -hmm. about this character and not have to have it be like about all the things that happened before yeah um, it is funny though, like Pixie is a real sort of like pet character for Matt Fraction, which like so many X-Men writers over the years have like kind of gotten there. I mean, this is kind of true of superhero comics generally, but it is really funny to see yeah. how like certain creators have their pet character who they either created or it's just like a minor character who they for some reason are like obsessed with. And it's in, like, everything they write. And then as soon as someone else comes on, that character is just, like, completely vanished. So it's, like, right. like I feel like Jubilee is sort of like that for Chris Claremont. And sure. then Joss Whedon has armor who is there and then is just gone. Grant Morrison. Um, I would say Quentin Quire is kind of that for Grant Morrison, except he does crop up more later for some other people a bit more often. But but Pixie is very much that where like she's basically like the perspective character for like the Matt Fraction Uncanny X-Men stuff. And then as soon as he's off the book, she just like ceases to exist. Yeah, and I, I think that is like in a way that is maybe trying to like get out from under the canon in a way where it's like, yeah, you sort of introducing have to do it the perspective of a character who is not like fully versed and doesn't have like decades of baggage behind them. And so it's like, you can tell a cohesive, like more or less beginning to end or like a developing story Mm -hmm. with this character without having to, you know, put all that stuff in it as well. Although it's funny because like, if that's the goal, why would you have the cliffhanger of your first arc be Madeline Pryor is back? (laughs) Well, that's the thing is like <laughs> a character you have who to died do, 25 years ago. <laughs> you have to do that. But then you can also have Pixie. It's <laughs> right. like, I guess, like how you sort of justify it. Or maybe it is you get to do that. Like maybe you you have to have some level of enjoy. I mean, like Jonathan Hickman is like the most obvious example of like, mm-hmm. oh, it makes perfect sense that he is doing the X-Men because it is just like omega nerd blasting you yeah it's like he like kind of lost the plot of x-men 2 and sort of like bailed earlier than he originally planned to I really <laughs> although like x i don't know the full i'm not up to date but. He, he like also approached x-men very differently from how he did his other sort of like sprawling epics where especially with avengers it was like okay, I'm going to write Avengers and new Avengers. And they're like moving kind of like 
laterally without much intersection except then when they do intersect it's like a big thing and then also when they intersect there's going to be like an event and I'm also going to write that and so I'll be writing like all three books but then when he came to X-Men it was like okay I'm doing House of X and Powers of 10 as the sort of like I'm that's my like vision casting basically for my like X-Men saga and then coming out of that I'm going to write X-Men and then there's going to be a completely different creative team doing Excalibur and a completely different creative team doing um, freaking uh, Marauders and a completely different team doing, I can't even remember all the titles that were part of that like kind of first wave, but there were like, it was like six books that launched and it's like, I'm writing one, but we do like all these writers summits where we sort of like plan the direction for the line together but you know these people are sort of like driving those and then i'll write the events and different like teams are going to be sort of like the main teams for the different events but i'm not going to actually be like writing those books and so i think people had a hard time where it was like i don't want to read all of these books because they're not all like it was a lot of people who were like i'm here for like jonathan hickman's x-men I don't necessarily want to read all of these additional X books, but now you're also telling me that they're going to be like super important for these events that you are writing. And so I think there was a lot of confusion for people about like, what should I actually be reading? How many of these are good outside of Hickman's X-Men? Is Hickman's X-Men even that good? (laughs) Um, And then it just sort of like, I think people started to feel like it was spinning its wheels a bit. And then eventually he was like, all right, I'm off to do Substack now. Um, But they've like got my playbook and the line's in good hands. Bye. And then people were like, what? Because he had basically just said like, we've reached the end of act one of my like three act X-Men, you know, like epic. And then within like less than a year after that, he was like, and now I'm leaving it in like capable hands. Goodbye. I have to write a like, Substack comic that's really obsessed with like moons and circles. <laughs> that rules. Um, and also, like, he did the same thing. I haven't actually read any of his Substack stuff, but it was the same idea with that, where it's like, it's three comics, and I'm sort of like masterminding the general direction for the universe, but I'm only writing one. And I have no right. idea how that has like kind of been received because no one talks about Substack comics. Yeah. I mean, it is. And again, like, maybe that is, like, just what he's suited for is, like, being a bit more of an architect. Because I do think, like, whenever I read about, like, because uh, I did a lot of Wikipedia reading, obviously, mm-hmm. throughout these <laughs> comics. And then, like, truly with, like, almost every character, it would be, like, in Dawn of X, this character is here and they're, like, doing this thing. And, like, this is their job in, like, the mutant, like society and i'm like that's cool yeah it definitely was like sort of a grand unifying theory of x-men type of uh like approach to it yeah i I, it's like that is interesting that is cool but it's just like once you start getting a lot of creative voices involved it's not really a grand unified theory because it's not you know you're letting out a lot of sort of like control over the the like direction of things. And I think like to tie it back to the comics that we're ostensibly discussing, it feels <laughs> like that is kind of the source of the frustration for Brubaker in these comics because 
like I think that he would have I don't actually even really know whose sort of like idea Messiah complex was like if that was something that he was interested in and like originated or if that was like an editorial thing where they were like this is what we're doing as the follow-up to House of M or what but it feels to me like he would have preferred to either just write the whole thing or like not been involved and having right. to do it like piecemeal like I said you can just feel like the air go out of these comics once it hits that section and he just like never really gets it back right I am also sorry just to conclude i am looking at this the like dawn x it is really good that it's like october 19 is it's like dawn of x a 2019 relaunch of the x-men line of comic books mm-hmm. it was followed by a sequel relaunch named reign of x in december 2020 and then i clicked on reign of x and it's like it was followed by another relaunch <laughs> called destiny of x <laughs> um yeah there were a lot of cool ideas in the hickman stuff I have not read too much of it, mostly because I was sort of waiting to see what would kind of emerge as like, this is the essential stuff or the stuff that's like actually worth reading. And then to see it sort of just like peter out in a lot of different directions, I was then just sort of like, I don't know, some of these titles are like, I am interested to like read Marauders at some point. I'm interested to read Excalibur at some point in like more detail. I might eventually read some of the events, but like at the time, especially it seemed like so much work just to like stay on top of everything. And there was like no clear sense of what was going to be really essential for kind of the overarching story and what was going to be kind of fun additional stuff. And I guess the idea was that, like, it will all be important at some point. That's kind of the Hickman thing. Like, everything will be important at some point. But, yeah, <laughs> it it didn't end up being the case. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It is nice to think that there is a world where, like, someone knows, like, what's going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I think when you read these books, it does really feel like there is, like, a bit of a disconnect. And one thing we haven't talked about is that, like uncanny x-men number 500 oh, is yeah. like it's in like this a run. total a total nothing <laughs> and it's like a nothing it's just like the start of a new story arc which like it does like sort of refresh the status quo to some extent yeah like, but it, these days like it, hitting number 500 is like uh like we're gonna do a celebration issue where yeah it, i i feel like maybe because of things like that like it used to be I think everyone kind of wanted their anniversary issues to be like a Spider-Man 300, which is where you get like the first full Venom appearance. And everyone's like, whoa, like such a groundbreaking moment. You can like make your mark. Yeah. Like it's it's an anniversary issue and they come out with like the big guns blazing like Venom first Venom first appearance in (laughs) Amazing Spider-Man 300. And I feel like there was a little while where they that was kind of the tack that they wanted to take where it was like bold new direction for the book, et cetera, et cetera. Like we're going to hit daredevil 500 in brew Baker's run too. And it has a similar vibe of a sort of like, you know, big new direction for the series for the anniversary issue. These days they more so are just like, we're just going to do like a celebration and it's going to be like an 80 page issue where like, 10 different creators write short stories and like yeah i was reading about like, like action comics 1000 yeah that's like i mean that one's like a really big deal where they did a whole like hardcover presentation and stuff like that um 
and like Marvel 1000, I think was a thing they did as well, where the whole premise of that was like one pagers. And there's some really good like one pagers that um, that come came out of that. But yeah, I think they just sort of recognized the folly of <laughs> trying to trying to like catch lightning in a bottle on the anniversary issue and uh, and threw in the, the towel. It is also but it's also like magneto's in this issue for like no reason yeah for no reason and it's like aha the sentinels didn't target him because he's wearing a magneto suit and like also the high evolutionary is here but they're off to go do something else i hope i hope fraction was able to do something with that (laughs) but uh now do we want to talk about this? Uh, if you could date a Marvel character, who would it be and why, Paige? <laughs> I, I I was searching around in because there are a few of these mm-hmm. in this set of issues. Which issue is that? That is in four ninety two. It's there are a lot of funny things like that. Like yeah. I love the like ephemera of yeah. Like there's the the Nuff said interviews are always interesting. That the, the what if you could date a Marvel character, who would it be and why? Is like a completely demented thing for them to do. Um, the uh, yes, I I almost like screenshotted and posted the Brian Michael Bendis answer, which is crazy. <laughs> um. He did have like a weird obsession with Luke Cage uh, in this this era, um, and a long-standing obsession with uh, with Kitty Pride. Um, sure. The other one that I thought was really funny in terms of this sort of like ephemera stuff, I think it might actually be from the immediately preceding issue. Is there's a page that's like like from the files of Nick Fury, like secrets about these characters, <laughs> yeah. blah blah blah, to like to use against them and it's just like random pieces of trivia and then the last one is just straight up like a fun fact (laughs) that is like not even like an in-universe fact it's like this character was uh, oh it's like a dave cockrum thing it's like dave cockrum originally created storm to be like able to turn into a cat (laughs) it's like oh (laughs) thanks nick <laughs> Let me know how you're planning to use that as like leverage against Storm in the future. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a, there's oh. so many like weird, funny things like hanging around this book that are like more interesting than the books themselves, which sure. is really funny. <laughs> I mean, like that's the thing is like. I feel like for us at least, it's like that is maybe the appeal of like reading something like this, where it's like mm-hmm. so like ingrained in the universe is like we're really not like reading it for the X Men of it all, or like for the uncanny X Men issue number four ninety one of it all. We're mm-hmm. reading it for the like this is what the Marvel universe was doing at the time, <laughs> and like this is like how people talked about. <laughs> dating Marvel characters. <laughs> it just like is really funny to look back. Even like, yeah, there's so many things about that one particularly where it's like, okay, let's see. Like Frank Cho now has like a reputation as like <laughs> his like main thing that he does right now, aside from covers, is that this is so convoluted and complicated. So Milo Minara 
is like an Italian artist who does like Ben Dessinay stuff, like Euro comics, who is especially known for his like erotica stuff. And he was commissioned to do a variant cover of Spider Woman, uh, which he did. And she was like doing this pose that was very like caked up, basically. Um, and people were like, you can't draw Spider Woman like that. We don't want that cover. And so Marvel pulled the cover and then Frank Cho, who is like pretty much like a cheesecake artist, <laughs> um, is is like a big part of his appeal, was like, I don't want that cover pulled. I loved that cover. And at conventions started doing a bunch of like sketch covers where people were like in those poses. And I think he did one that was Spider-Gwen. This was like before Into the Spider-Verse had even come out, I think. Like it was right. just like he did a sketch cover for someone's issue of Spider-Gwen where she was doing the pose. And then the artist on Spider-Gwen like was like, you better hope you don't run into me at a con or I'm going to punch you in the face, basically. And so then he kept doing it where like he had spider-man doing it and then he would now have spider gwen as like a little head bubble in the corner screaming outrage on all of them anyways all this to say so he's like like a pseudo slash like fully misogynistic provocateur who like enjoys making people mad through cheesecake art and so to then go back to 2008 and have him be like who would i date wasp because she's rich and emotionally damaged is like aha <laughs> like classic and, and then also the, directly below that <laughs> yeah <laughs> but well that's yeah so underneath that is anyone that's been drawn by frank cho because again he is like a a pinup artist basically Um, But then also like to see who they saw as like some of the prominent creators or like up and coming creators like Mark Sumerak, a person who I've never heard of, (laughs) is like featured prominently. Oh, yeah. And then this is the really funny one. So C.B. Sabalski is have we already talked about the whole Akira Yoshida thing? Yes, we have yeah, definitely okay. in a previous episode. So C.B. Sapolsky <laughs> is currently the editor-in-chief of Marvel, and when he was appointed to that position, it was revealed that he had written comics under the alias Akira Yoshida because Marvel editors aren't allowed to write comics at the same time. But he had like basically like... <laughs> done like writerly yellow face and like been hired for some titles because they were like the perspective of a japanese man is just what we need for this book right and his thing is everyone who knows me would assume i would want to date psylocke but i prefer to date mary jane (laughs) is that an intentional like no you don't think this came out in 2008 but like he wasn't named editor-in-chief and the Akira Yoshida stuff didn't come out until like 2017 2018 2019 but people did know this or people didn't know no one no no one knew this at the time wow that's really funny (laughs) Um, yeah it's great just like the fact that like every there's so many layers to it where like everyone would assume an asian woman but actually a white woman (laughs) and then like (laughs) the fact that the asian woman that he specifically names is psylocke who is actually a white woman trapped in an asian woman's body (laughs) yeah it's which also like had not really been litigated at that time yeah like people didn't really think about that yeah there's so many layers to it to go back and see that as the cb sabalski answer that just make it like absolutely hysterical. <laughs> it's really good. Yeah, so lots of stuff like that. 
that is people who are choosing like a lot of kitty pride picks joe casada says squirrel girl nuff said yeah <laughs> squirrel girl has always been kind of like a meme-ish character sure. and like particularly around this time she sort of has had like peaks and valleys where at this point bendis was writing her in avengers so she was kind of like in view in for the... a while as like a sort of memeish character and then she sort of like faded back into obscurity and then ryan north and erica henderson did a squirrel girl like ongoing yeah. that had a I've very like that. comedic tone um and and like flung her back into the spotlight and had a lot of fun with her sort of like history where she like references defeating Galactus at some point in like one of her early appearances, which everyone makes jokes about. But then uh, certain sections of the internet started getting really mad at the suggestion that she could beat Galactus. And we're like, <laughs> that was obviously just a joke, blah, blah, blah. And then like Ryan North and Erica Henderson had a thing like in Squirrel Girl where she was like, I beat Galactus and that is not a joke or like any kind of like something. It's something that definitely happened. And like, here's a picture of it. It's like her punching Galactus <laughs> in the face and then Wolverine or someone is popping up and being like, it's true. I was there. <laughs> oh, so yeah. X-Men. What can we say? <laughs> oh, let me, um, let me revisit quickly that um, this Matt Fraction interview I was looking at which I think um, just like sheds some light, <laughs> interestingly. So this was an interview that they did in March of 2008, which was like right after it had been announced that he was going to take over. And they had done the interview before it was officially announced. And so the they ask him, IGN asks him, um, when Alonzo, Axel Alonzo, the... Uh, the editor of uh, the book at the time, or maybe the X-Men line editor, or maybe the editor-in-chief? No, it still would have been Casada. Anyways, an editor, um, the editor who Darwin Cook threw a drink in the face of and got himself blacklisted from Marvel over. Anyways, when Alonzo asked, did he explain what exactly about the series he was hoping to change and what you might bring to Uncanny as a writer? And his fraction's response is, Nothing specifically, but he knew Ed and he knew uh, the two of us worked together on Iron Fist. I think he was looking for that same sort of spirit and energy. I think part of this was that Marvel was worried that Ed was going to go. They wanted to keep Ed on the book and keep him fired up creatively. Between doing a year of the Shi'ar storyline and then going to Messiah Complex, I think Ed was just tired. You'd have to ask Ed about this, but my suspicion is that they wanted to keep Ed on an X-Men book and get him recharged if possible. <laughs> so, like... <laughs> Which is that's, crazy. Like, that's why would bleak. you think? Why would you think that that would be the way to recharge someone creatively is to stick them on X-Men? Well, I think the idea is that, like, okay, we get it. You're writing a lot of books right now, and, like, most of them are maybe more creatively fulfilling for you at the moment. So let's like reduce your workload on this book instead of like taking you off completely. And the hope is like, Oh, like you already have like such a fruitful collaborative relationship with this other writer. You're going to be cutting your like workload in half on this book. Maybe it will let you kind of like keep plugging away at this, but like just to like have it 
this is so so bleak of like an interview to read <laughs> um which like i i don't know i think they already knew that brubaker was going to be going off after their sort of like chunk of issues together at this point but like it's just so like why did uh, Marvel think that you would be a good fit for this? Oh, because Ed's completely burnt out, <laughs> but they don't want to lose him on the book. It's like, wow. Right. <laughs> like, don't yeah, say that out loud. <laughs> big, big yikes. <laughs> um, yeah. And so then, as I said, he says, uh, I'm coming on with issue 500. After that, I'm writing 501, 502 and 503 solo. And then Ed comes on for 504, 505, and 506. We've co-plotted everything together, and then we're just handing off script writing chores individually. Um, And then... And the idea was like that would continue indefinitely? So I'm not sure, really. Like, it it seems like at this point... I I don't know. it It kind of seems torn where it's like... The way he talks about it makes it seem like the hope is that it will allow Brubaker to continue, but then also it seems like they have already basically like gotten Brubaker's like letter of resignation at this point. And because like right. he ultimately doesn't ever even end up writing 504, 505, 506. Like he's right. just done after those three issues that definitely Fraction just wrote. <laughs> I think we can all <laughs> empathize <laughs> with that feeling of like, I know I agreed to do this thing, but I'm actually just done. And I mean, he feels like he has quit this book well before we hit those issues anyways. But it's like, I mean, like, I know he, I know like 20 something issues is like not insignificant, but it's like, he just started. <laughs> like, yeah, well, yeah, that's that's the weird thing is like he does this big epic and that's like basically his only story <laughs> because yeah, after that's that, like, it's oh, like, then you're done. Yeah, like after that, it's and I mean, to be fair, like if you include Deadly Genesis as sort of like part of sure. that or like the first act of that in some ways, like that's a big 18 issue storyline that sure took like a couple years of of time basically but then like after that it is like so we are gonna have you write another like 18 issues but they're all gonna basically be about nothing and feel like they're spinning their wheels and then you're gonna leave which yeah i mean we talked last time about how it's like it is crazy and it feels like this should be like the last corporate superhero comic of his that we talk about instead of the first and then like after this it's all image stuff because he's like i'm just so glad to be out of that superhero grind but it's like no after this we are going to be talking about like several of his best love superhero stories and then we'll get to his um his independent stuff right um sorry i'm just reading cb sabolsky's wikipedia (laughs) (laughs) any good tidbits in a subquest in marvel ultimate alliance the player needs to recommend one of two hackers to help weasel hack into shield files (laughs) and determine whether the blackwood is a double agent one of them named sabolsky is revealed to be the correct choice since the other barogue is a squealer sure Yes. Um, Sabolsky addressed his use of the pseudonym, stating, I stopped writing under the pseudonym Akira Yoshida after about a year. It wasn't transparent, but it taught me a lot about writing, communication, and pressure. I was young and naive and had a lot to learn back then. 
but this is all old news that has been dealt with. And now as Marvel's new editor-in-chief, I'm turning a new page and I'm excited to start sharing all my Marvel experiences with up-and-coming talent around the globe. Wow. <laughs> old news that has been dealt with that I'm just revealing now for the first time. Oh, I love how bad that is. <laughs> Nothing like, I understand people are angry, but this is all old news that has been dealt with. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. What a crazy chapter in Marvel Comics history that, like, I wish that there were more people who <laughs> could, like, speak to this. <laughs> Anyways, that was pretty much it. I have not looked at sales stuff for this. I think it probably is pretty consistent with what we talked about last time, which is to say a top 20 book, but not breaking any sales records, maybe a spike in the event issues. Because as I said, even though nobody seems to like them, there is an obvious financial impetus to continue doing that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, not with a bang, but a whimper for Ed Brubaker's tenure on X-Men. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean like at the end of the day it's like it is both like fun to dive into like something like this but then it's also like completely exhausting mm -hmm. and like i remember how like it sometimes felt way more like of a of like work to go through this stuff before like when we were doing like even like vaughn mm -hmm. Who, like most of the, his stuff i guess he would be the primary example we haven't really yeah like swamp in. thing and and runaways both sometimes felt like that for sure paper girls even r.i.p to the show uh could feel like that sometimes is that true yeah they announced a couple weeks ago that amazon was not going to be renewing and uh and they're shopping it around for another network but i think we all generally know how that tends to go, <laughs> especially for a season that wasn't renewed or a show that wasn't renewed after one season. Why the last man season two is coming soon though, right? <laughs> any, any day now it was like, okay, not to, not to like go back to this thing that we, I think discussed like pretty thoroughly at the time, but like they just are way too late on these properties that were like very fresh at the time they came out and just are very not fresh today when <laughs> like the the section of the market that they were sort of like innovating in tv has already done that with a different property and so they completely lose right. the like sense of freshness and innovation but but these oh um, and i say that as someone who like i watched paper girls and like it was like decent it was like a 7.5 out of 10 i would say like yeah. i had a perfectly good time watching it it did have some sound issues uh in the outdoor scenes had a bit of the tenet effect but uh <laughs> whoa um the critical consensus on ron tomato says this this is it has a strong ensemble of youngsters who are as dimensional as origami <laughs> careful dude <laughs> what does that mean <laughs> Just be careful, dude. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. Oh, Ali Wong a... plays adult Aaron. That's funny. Yeah, Ali Wong does play adult Aaron. Jason Manzukas as grandfather, as we discussed. Um, I mean, the show watchers will never learn his true identity as Joppo. Um, never even met Joppo. Yeah, it was it was decent, but it just I don't know. 
too late, guys. You got to strike while the iron is hot on some of these. Yeah. Um, and speaking of striking while the iron is hot, I, this isn't really a segment that makes any sense, but <laughs> we're moving on <laughs> to mm-hmm. books that are more liked, and I think we will probably. Oh, I don't enjoy. think they're more light. <laughs> Light. I think they're with oh, a K. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I thought you said books that are more light, and I was like, they're better. I don't think I'd say that they're light. Yeah. From here <laughs> on, really it's smooth thing. sailing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Daredevil right into criminal. Um, oh, not right into criminal. I know, I know. No spoilers. Um, but yes, huh? uh, next week we will be doing Daredevil. So that starts like pretty contemporaneously with this. We'll, we'll talk about it, I imagine, yeah. next week. So that will be exciting. Anything else you want to add before we uh, take it to the outro? No. Um, yeah, not really. I think we might do some Civil War talk on there as well, because it has been like mm. alluded to several times in here and like slightly front and centers itself a bit more. So we might we might spend a little bit of time on that. But um, yeah, mostly Daredevil will be covering issues 82 to 99 of, uh, of volume two next week. Great. So everyone look forward to that. A highly acclaimed run. Um, in the meantime, thank you all for listening. Please remember to give us the stars, drop some bars, uh, get in your cars, and listen to the episode while you are driving to and from work. <laughs> Preferably uh, with a friend who can be like, what is this? <laughs> yeah. Tell a friend about the podcast if you do enjoy it. They can be part of the Lucky Ten uh uh excuse you we're closer to like 14 these days okay so good work everyone if you told a friend (laughs) (laughs) thank you very much i think that's probably true not also Um, not to uh not to like completely go off the rails and talk more about the hobtown website again but did you see that (laughs) it also got re-updated again after like the day after we talked about it did we talk about that on Mike even? We talked about it on Mike because I uh oh it might have been like hidden in the outro, but I was laughing at like there's like there was a section where it was like basically like God is super intelligent, aliens are super intelligent, you can't be super intelligent and not good, see God, therefore aliens <laughs> who visit you are good. And uh that was where there was like the references to like warism, genderism, hateism. <laughs> um, but then there was like a warning on it that was basically from Beth Barb being like, this is stupid and we're taking it down. And then it did go down for a day and then it came back. But a bunch of the content was like now missing and just had notes where it was like, at this part, I had a great message of hope uh, and peace, but all that is gone now thanks to Earth Mindset. <laughs> Whoa. Like, I, I would love to know how many people saw the original version <laughs> and then like looked back to see the new version anyways i'm obsessed with that website i've spent so much time on there in the past two weeks <laughs> <laughs> it's really good it's really really strong um so shout out to that uh, like I said, tell a friend if you do enjoy us. Uh, we are always, you know, it's it's a niche pod, so uh, we're always on the lookout for people who might enjoy our particular brand of uh, of musings on this crazy mixed up spinning marble that we're all on together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how I talk now. Um, got the runs pod on Twitter. Got the runs pod at gmail dot com. 
Uh, you can find me at C House and Jane on Twitter. Listen to Bevy of Bevies. It's coming back, baby. Uh, I think at the time this releases, the new episode will either be out or about to come out. Uh, start of the fall season. You're yawning. Yep. <laughs> You're not interested. <laughs> uh, high floor, low ceiling is back. Great episode last week. Uh, check that out. And I think that will have to do it for today. Uh, I'm trying not to <laughs> belabor the outros I so often <laughs> do. So until next time, to, to be, be continued. continued.